Hi, everyone. Yes, good morning. I, I heard that before, and I didn't think there was much response, so I thought I'll try something different. Instead of good morning, maybe hi would work. So it was much better. You're coming around. That's good. How many are here? Okay. A few more still, still waiting on it. So uh, when you get here, we'll, we'll get it going. Uh, I'm glad you're here. I welcome you. Um, whatever the reason you're here, um, just forget that reason. And uh, just open your mind, open your heart, open your spirit. And, uh, and just pray a prayer and ask God uh, to give you something that you don't even know you need, maybe. But something that will help you, something that will encourage you, something that will cause you to grow. Um, I'm, I, think, I think it's been on the screen already, I'm not sure, but today's scripture is coming from Matthew 5, and we're going to start the service, and we're hopefully going to end the message um, in Ephesians chapter 6. So if you've got your Bible and, or your app or whatever you're using, uh, if you just, um, yeah, just take a second and, and find those spots, it'd be great. Matthew 5 and Ephesians chapter 6. Um, by the way, I don't know if it was, uh, re- you're reminded or not to check in on Facebook and let people know that you're here. Uh, I'm in a series. Uh, most of you know that, and it's been going a while, and it'll probably continue for a little bit. It's entitled, The Truth Is. This is elementary, fundamental, uh, doctrine of the faith type of messages. It's what we call Christian apologetics, and I'm going to say it again. That doesn't mean we're apologizing for being Christians. That's not what Christian apologetics is. It's a founda- these are the foundational anchors. This is the, if you want to call it, systematic defense uh, of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. And today <clears throat> certainly is no exception. In other words, know what you believe. So important. I, I can't overemphasize this. Uh, matter of fact, I think there's never been a day probably uh, that in, in the modern era for sure where Christians needed to know the truth, what they believe and why they believe it than, than today. And I cannot stress that too much. So I hope that you'll stay with me as I try to expand uh, on this thought. This is installment number six in this series, and uh, all the rest of the messages and any more that we do in this series are available and will be available to you, both uh, to download and also in CD form. Today, um, the message is entitled, The Church its flaws, its influence. I want to start by reading from Matthew chapter 5. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. And um, I just want to set, kind of set the tone for what I'm going to be teaching. And Jesus is speaking here, and in verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5, we read these words. You're familiar with, with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy, well, I'm changing that, and I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives His, te- his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless. The good, the bad, the nice, the nasty. And if, you all, if all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. 
If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. And verse 48 says, in a word, what I'm saying is, this is Jesus speaking, grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. That's Matthew 5, 43 to 48 from the message. And it's a clear and concise message in itself. Sadly, there are many people today who reject Christianity. Just offhand reject it. And if you ask them why, some of the answers are because of there's, there's so much hypocrisy. These are people who tolerate hypocrisy in every other area of life. But for some reason, in the realm of faith or religion or churchianity or whatever you want to call it, they just can't handle hypocrisy. And they say there's so many inconsistencies in the church. Not just the church, but individual Christians that make up the church. And they point to some of the ugly parts of the church's past. They go way back in history, which is fine, and they talk about the Crusades. They talk about the witch trials. They talk about the Inquisition. Now, we know the Spanish conquistadors perpetuated unspeakable cruelty against people they considered to be savage, and they did it, hear, hear me carefully, in the name of Christ. People who were supposed to be Bible-believing Christians, they owned slaves, and they mistreated them right here in our own country. Let me say from the beginning that these atrocities are indefensible and the complaints that people make, even to today, are legitimate. The relationship between Christianity and violence has been, is, and probably will be for a long time a subject of controversy and objection. You have people that you share or try to share with about your faith, and this is one of their objections, they won't give it up. Because some people have used or interpreted its teachings to justify violence, while others maintain that it only promotes peace, love, and compassion. And that's quite a, just a juxtaposition there. That, that's quite a, a contrary thing. Despite the example of Jesus, some institutions and individuals have acted violently and attempted to justify themselves through Christian writing and teaching and so on. Or, you get the question, how do you explain the various chapters of violence in Christian history and done so often in the name of Christ? But it's not only past his history that people point to. I've had many people point, uh, talking with them point to current situations, even down to the local church, like the one you're in right now. And then I think of things that have happened in my lifetime, uh, things like the unrest in Northern Ireland, which has been going on for over 300 years, close to four, where Catholics who say they are Christians were killing Protestants who say they are Christians, and Protestants who say they are Christians are killing Catholics who say they are Christians. In my lifetime, and in some of your lifetimes, the remnants of the southern culture here in the U.S. where white Christians beat and killed black Christians during the struggle for what was called and still trying to, to drum it up is racial uh, equality or inequality. You know, Klan members were often church members and they used, they used churches and they used Christians 
uh, rhetoric and they quoted Bible verses to foster hatred and as many of the militant race, uh, racial groups are doing even today. They're still at it. By the way, I use the word racist, and I want to go on record so that you know exactly who and where and what I am. I am a racist. I believe in the human race. That was very, very weak. I hope I'm not preaching to real racists. No, that's... You laugh, but that's exactly what I'm teaching about right now. Christianity, its flaws, its influence. So the questions we have to ask are are things like this. Is this kind of hate and violence really the norm? Or is it an anomaly in Christian history? We have to ask questions like, is it the rule or is it the exception? Were the actions of these people consistent with Christian teaching, or are they just an aberration of it? So I want to face some of these questions squarely, and I want you to be part of this as we look at the violence in Christian history and the violence that's been perpetrated in the name of Christ that are going on in parts of the world even today. So that prompts me to bring out to the surface what I call a few probing questions. You may have heard these questions asked. You may have asked them yourself. All well and good. Let's look at question number one. Why was there violence in Christian history? That's a broad, broad area, let me tell you. And I'll say, so what do you mean by that? And the questioner will say, well, what about the Crusades? They always go to that. What about the witch trials? What about slavery? What about all these things? What's happening here? Was this part and parcel of the Christian faith, or was it misguided individuals who happened to be Christians, or at least claimed to be Christian? An avowed atheist, and, he, and he's a, a, a very widely read, he write, he's written a lot of stuff, a man by the name of Ken Shee, made this statement, and I want to quote, Christianity has, by certain people, been used throughout history as an excuse for some of the most brutal heartless, and senseless atrocities known to man. And that's the end of the quote. He goes so far as to form, he went so far, he was so exercised about this, that he formed an organization called Atheists for Jesus. Okay? Which promotes Jesus' message of love and kindness without accepting him as God or seeing the church as an institution that follows the teachings of Jesus. Why? Because he loves the ethics of Jesus. And he's turned off by what Christians from the 11th century on, because it was the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries, encouraged by the Pope of Rome who slaughtered thousands of people in an attempt to take back control of the Holy Land from the Muslim population. I want to ask, how's that working? Then there was the supreme... the Spanish Inquisition, which endeavored to deal with heresy within the church through church trials, which often ended up in torture or death. Then there were the witch trials in the early history of our own country where people were often burned at the stake or hanged, about 20 of them in total. It was a dark time in the history of the church. Well, how do we respond to these events? And, 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 And even what I've said so far is a lot to take in. People are already leaving. But um, 
I'm going to preach them back. They'll be back. But now we look upon these things really in shame, and we ought to. First of all, we freely admit the truth of what happened. And we must say what has happened in that history was wrong. There's no sense trying to spend any more time justifying it or trying to make it right. It was wrong. And secondly, we ought to say that what some people have done in the name of Christ, even to today, they did in the wrong way. And I know I could veer off very easily here, follow that rabbit trail, and talk about church splits and denominations and all that other really good stuff. And all I have to say about all of that is man, man, God made the birds and man made the cages, and he's still making them. Let's get over it. Let's move on. The actions that were done in the past were not in concert with Christian teaching. They are the very antithesis of Christian teaching. And the best of them were misguided. The worst of them loved cruelty. Now we need to stop and breathe here for a minute. I want you to clear your mind. And I want you to listen to my next statement. All that I've said so far, and you've considered it with me, thank you for being so sincerely with me, there is a lesson here for all of us in the way we treat other people. Period. Whether it's the store clerk, the waitress, the customer. Some people in my pastoral background, i got to tell you, and, and recent history too, have really hurt me by not treating people right and then those people making sure they told me about it. And that hurts. It hurts you, it hurts your testimony, it hurts your church, it hurts the cause. And not only all these people on the periphery, but what about people in our own family? I've known some mighty mean Christians in my day. I could keep you here for a while, giving you some, ex some examples of things that we've lived through in the last 40-some years. Matter of fact, sometimes I've been one of them. And when it comes to taking a stand on important issues, you know, you may have a good cause, but in carrying out that cause, we may employ methods which go against the very core of what Jesus taught. Our cause may be just, and it may be sincere, and you may be the most important and the most uh, sincere person in the, in the whole matter, but your methods may be totally and altogether unchristian. And that will defeat and that will destroy everything that you stand for and that you call the cause, period. So that's the first question. And the second awkward question is, why is there violence in present-day Christianity? Why would a tr I'm going to ask the question here. I don't think anybody has the answer, but I'm going to proffer something for you here. Why would a true Christian shoot and kill a doctor who performs abortions? Let it sink in. Let it sink in. I know what some of you believe about this, and I know what I believe, but let that think, sink in. If you, if you want to go something further afield, I'll go back to the Northern Ireland example. Why would Protestants on one side want to kill Christians on the other side of the street, and why would uh, Catholics on one side of the street, and why would Catholics uh, in this neighborhood want to march down to the Protestant neighborhood and kill some of them? I mean, 
we've witnessed that in our own lifetime, some of us. What about the violence and the abuse perpetrated by priests and clergymen against young innocents? I mean, how can the church today, with straight face, possibly respond to these kind of injustices? How can we take those questions and then make it all come out rosy? Again, we face these things with honesty and we admit their appalling evil. These actions are not in keeping with the Christian faith at all. They go against its very fiber. The Christian, let me go back to that question. The, the Christian who shoots an abortion doctor may say to himself, well, when I did that, I was actually saving lives. You're saving lives by killing a person? Yeah, but I'm saving a lot more. Okay, let's keep following that reasoning. But in the very act of killing that doctor, you are going against the very moral law that he is desiring to uphold. It is a distortion and it is an aberration of Christian principle. It is admirable to be against the killing of innocents who have yet to have a chance to live outside the womb, but killing a person in an act which says that you really do not believe in the right of life of all individuals. You don't care about the life of everybody. It's a very inconsistent argument, and it's against the teachings of Christ, it's against the tenets of Scripture, and it's against the will of God. You say, well, I guess two wrongs don't make a right. It isn't even about that. When you're doing and acting and behaving in a way that is contrary to the teaching of Scripture, the Word of God, and the plan of God for our lives, you can't, you can't excuse that away. I'm sorry. You can't make that right just by talking about it. So the same could be said for those who are supposed to be ministers or priests or pastors or whatever, and they act out violence against children or against anybody. And these are the people that they're supposed to be caring for. And these people go against the specific teaching of Jesus. And he said in Matthew 18 and verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. The actions of sick individuals like this often cause a severe spiritual dysfunction in the lives of their victims, if they survive. The spiritual toll in ruined lives is absolutely incalculable and will be judged most severely by God. The current conflicts that continue and rage on in which Christians are being attacked, Christians are being threatened. I mean, we don't know. We see little bits of it here and there, and I'm sure it's not little to the people that are involved here in the Western world and particularly here in the U.S. But I've got to tell you around the world, you, you don't understand what our brothers and sisters in Christ are living through. Groups of people divided along the line of their particular religious beliefs, and they're acting with violence against each other, all in the name of religion. Once more, these atrocities go against the very core and the very fiber of what Christianity teaches. Jesus again said in Luke 6, verses 27 to 29, if you're notating, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, hello. You ever been truly cursed out? Just think back in your mind. How many times when that happened to you, if it ever did, if it ever did, did you turn on heel and 
bless that person. Now this is Jesus speaking. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Is that enough? You want me to stop? Well, I will after I tell you what else he said. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Sort of like, come on, you can do better than that. Give me your best shot. Well, that's just not human. We can't. Re You're exactly right. That's why Jesus said it. And he said, if I'm in you and you're in me and we have fellowship, it'll be done that way. And if you're retaliatory and you're angry and you're living in that and you refuse to forgive, you're going to live in that anger and retaliation all your days. That's not a very pretty picture. Say, well, I can forgive. I think, but I can't forget. Or I hear this. Do you know what she did? I just could never forgive her. I could just never forgive him. I could just never forgive them. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And yes, you can. Why? Listen to me very carefully. Because you have been forgiven. Yeah, I didn't think that was something that you've been taught before. You can forgive anybody, anything, because you have been forgiven. Work on that. Think about that. One of the things that persuades me, and it certainly impresses many people, and it impacts a lot of people, of the authenticity of the Christian faith is the fact that we can face our sin we can admit our sin, and we can seek God's forgiveness. That's why many, many years ago, I adopted 1 John 1, 9 as my life verse, and it'll always be. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By the way, that letter was written to Christians. The assumption is, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're not going to sin, ever. There's a big word, though, that starts that verse, 1 John 1, 9, and it's the word if. And I have people come to me often and they say, well, I'm, I'm praying God will forgive me. I'm just going to I can't find that in Scripture anywhere. Anywhere I can't find that. But I can find this, Christian, if we confess our sin. All I have to do is own up to it, admit it. He already knows about it. You don't have to pray and... Give him the whole scenario. He knew about it before you did it. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness like we'd never sinned. The church, I'm afraid, parts of the church, maybe I should put it that way, have often repented, and there's still some parts of the, of the kingdom are still, uh, are still formally apologizing for sins of the past, I don't know how great that is or how effective, but I'm not against it. That's fine. 
Today, I know again in Northern Ireland, there are all kinds of groups, a lot of Christian groups who are seeking to continue to bring reconciliation between the warring parties. And sometimes they endanger their own lives to do that. And we know the con- really the conflict there, I've studied this quite, quite intensely because of my family background, and my family came from Ireland. Uh, but it's more about politics now and power than it is about religion. Back in 1690, when this all really, really struck, uh, I mean, uh, at the Battle of Boyne, that, 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 that was all about religion. But now it has morphed into politics and power and prestige and who's going to win at what cost and so on. But all of that, power, politics, religion, just throw it in there, Christianity, they're all, they got all so intermingled in that Northern Ireland thing, that they were inseparable. And nobody could make sense of any of it. Now, the efforts of Christians to bring, and I I think this is great, to bring sides together for prayer and worship and how powerfully God has used those efforts in people's lives is literally astounding today, and it's proof that those kind of things can happen, should happen, and uh, are still happening. What we experience in these situations is that we have very imperfect people who believe things they don't always live up to. Sometimes there's a large gap between beliefs and behavior. And by the way, if you've ever been caught up in what we normally call in the modern world uh, religious legalism, you kind of know what I'm talking about right here. Sometimes there's a large gap between beliefs and behavior. And whenever we're dealing with people or institutions, we have Im- remember, we have imperfect individuals and organizations who sometimes have to justify their behavior in spite of what they prof- profess to believe or what they're promoting. And it's always good to keep the actions of those who are supposed to be God's people separate from God himself. Don't judge God by the behavior of people who say they belong to God. Just because some, here's, here is a, a notable, noteworthy quote, and I'm going to even repeat it if you're trying to notate. Just because someone is a poor example of what the Bible teaches does not negate the truths of the Bible which they fail to live up to. Just because someone is a poor example of what the Bible teaches does not negate the truth of the Bible which they fail to live up to. And my English teacher always said, do not end a sentence with a preposition, unless you have to. (laughs) You're doing very well on the first two questions. So probing question number three, and we need to ask this, what can we do about all of this today? What can be done? What can we do? What can I do is what you ought to say, and I ought to say it. And then we had to look at each other and say, what can you do? And that's an important question because we don't want to repeat history. We don't want to leave obstacles for the, people of fut- uh, for the uh, people of the future generations yet to stumble over. There are going to be enough of them. We don't want there to be large gaps between what we profess to believe and the reality of what we do. 
If anything, we need to close that gap altogether. We want to follow the one who said this in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called, what? The children of God or the sons of God. We want to be sons and daughters of God. We want to be sons and daughters who honor our God. Amen? Amen? It's the only four-letter word allowed in here, so let's use it, okay? Someone has said, when everyone repays an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it won't be long until we're all blind and toothless. <laughs> so now we've looked at the problems. We've looked at what generates this kind of thinking and why people are still caught up in all these questions. I want to go a step further and say they're not really questions, they're objections to the Christian faith. And I have to say this, and I hate to say it, but in many cases they're justified objections. Although they carry them sometimes a little bit too far. So because of the fact that we don't want to repeat history, we don't want to see it repeat itself, and we don't want to cause stumbling blocks for future generations, heaven forbid, I see nothing else and no other solution to this than to take you to that powerful passage in Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. And I wonder, would it be okay, could we all read this together? Because it isn't for me, and it isn't for some Christian in the first century that Paul was thinking about. It's for every Christian everywhere in every age. That would include most of us, if not all of us, in this room. All I hope. So would you read with me? Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and have to stand. Okay, there's stand twice. And here it is three times. Stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now just picture yourself getting ready and getting the armor on and see all this. The belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is... Good job. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, by the way. Thank you, thank you. Now, did you paint a picture in your mind's eye while we were reading? You kind of see that? You kind of see that Christian warrior, and you're the one with that armor on? Did you see that? He said, put on the full armor of God. And he goes on to talk about the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, 
all that military equipment, and he looks like an awesome warrior, but then Paul adds something in the middle of all that that seems like, man, this is out of place, but it's there. It's got to be there. He says that the spiritual warrior's feet should be fitted with the gospel of what? Peace. Did you read that? Did you see that? And as I thought about the armor of this spiritual soldier, it struck me how strange it was that a warrior's feet would be guided by peace. Because isn't the idea of a warrior to be involved in making war? But the Christian soldier is to wage peace, not war. He is fighting a spiritual battle. If you miss this part, you've missed it all. But he's trusting God to win the war. His armor consists of faith, the scriptures, salvation, truth, all what? Guided by peace. How many would like a little bit more on the armor of God? Just a little more explanation. Okay, that's all of us. So, the Christian life is a battle, yes, no. Sometimes the Christian life is more of a battle than life. Yes, no. And there are several who are quoted in Scripture that would agree with you. Matter of fact, the Christian life is warfare on a grand scale. Let me give you a great example here. Jesus' ministry on earth began with a battle against Satan that lasted 40 days. And as his ministry drew to an end, Satan besieged him again. Where? In the Garden of Gethsemane. And he hit him with such force that our Lord sweat great drops of blood. Luke twenty two forty four. Those two accounts alone teach us that the battle may not become easier as we grow in our obedience to God. I hope you heard that. If anything, Satan will intensify his efforts against those who continually and effectively are serving the Lord. But God has not left us defenseless. Whew. And the Apostle Paul came on the scene, and he first started ministry. He went to Ephesus. He was going to preach the gospel and get everybody saved and have a megachurch and be on TV and all that stuff. He'd be the world's greatest televangelist. How many believe that? Okay. And he faced immediate opposition. What's the first thing that happened to him? Unbelieving Jews ran him out of the synagogue. Good start. The Jewish exorcist mimicked him. And then the silversmiths threatened him because their idol-making business was suffering because of Paul's ministry. People were leaving their idols, and they didn't need the silversmiths to make any more for them, and Paul was running them basically out of business. Economic downtime. Paul knew that where the greatest spiritual challenge lie was also likely to be the greatest danger and opposition. Sometimes I, I, I caution people not to pray for a victory because you don't know what's coming in order to get that victory. But, but I say that facetiously. But I do know a lot of pastors who have just walked, just gone, gone. They're, 
Couldn't take it. We've watched many of them leave the ministry. Why? Things became tough. Things became difficult. Satan opposed. An easy ministry could very well be a weak one. Because where the Lord's work is genuinely being done, Satan will not fail to oppose it every time. If you have never experienced that, stick around. As believers in Jesus Christ, we're not only God's children and God's servants, but also His soldiers. And a soldier's job is to fight the enemy. Paul closed his letter to the Ephesians by giving them and, and us the warning and encouragement that we read here, and you just read it so well, in Ephesians 6. Paul outlines the essential truths about the believer's warfare and the armor of God. And let me just take you there for a few minutes, the believer's armor. The belt that he talked about, <clears throat> the belt of truth, demonstrates the believer's readiness for war, and it stands for truth. And do you know the Greek word that it comes from? Anybody know? You're all going to chuckle when I say it. The Greek word is aletheia. <laughs> Not cute. That's the word. Exactly spelled the same. Basically refers to the content of that which is true. She's well named. Knowing the content of God's truth is absolutely essential for the believer if he's going to battle successfully against the schemes of Satan. Without knowing, hear me very carefully, especially if you're somewhat new to the faith, without knowing basic biblical teaching, he's subject to being carried about by every wind of doctrine, and by the trickery of men, and by the craftiness of deceitful scheming. Paul said that earlier on in Ephesians. But aletheia can also refer to the attitude of truthfulness. And I love that definition. It represents not only the accuracy of specific truths, but also the quality of the truthfulness. Now that seems to be the primary meaning that Paul has in mind here. To be girded with truth reveals an attitude of readiness, an attitude of genuine commitment. It's the mark of the sincere believer who for, forsakes hypocrisy and every encumbrance that might be, might be uh, uh, that might hinder his work for the Lord is gathered in and it's tucked into that belt of truthfulness so that it'll be out of the way and will not hinder him. So you first off put on the belt of truth, Aletheia. I love that. Secondly, the breastplate of righteousness. Now, can I just stop there for a second and we'll, we'll gather our, our senses. When he says the breastplate of righteousness, he's not talking about self-righteousness. Would you put this in your notes? Self-righteousness is the sin of pride. That has killed more Christian testimonies. That has killed more ministries. That has killed more New Testament churches, probably, than any other of the sins. All the sins, the great, grievous, and egregious sins are listed in Proverbs. And then they say, but the greatest of these is pride, the sin of pride. So when he talks about the breastplate of righteousness, he doesn't mean self-righteousness. And it's not either the righteousness that we receive, it's imputed to us uh, <clears throat> at salvation. We're not talking about that. We're talking about what we call practical righteousness. That is your moment-by-moment -moment obedience 
to God's word. So take on that belt of truth and pull on that breastplate of righteousness and then try the shoes or the boots of the gospel of peace. See, rooted in the marvelous truth that in Christ we are now at peace with God, we are one with God. And the believer who stands in the Lord's power need not fear any enemy. That'll take a little bit to sink in. The believer who stands in the Lord's power need not fear any enemy, even Satan himself, because we are planted firmly on the solid ground of the wonderful gospel of peace. What about the shield of faith? Those great big shields. And faith here, again, refers to faith in God, not the practical everyday faith that we live by. Satan's purpose is to cause you and me to forsake our trust in God and drive a wedge between the Savior and you or me. So Paul says, pick up and put on and hold on to the shield of faith so that that won't happen to you. And when it talks about the fiery darts or the fiery arrows, what they used to do is before they shot an arrow when they were in war, they would dip it in an oily substance and light it a fire and then shoot. That's where that term comes from. And then put on the helmet of salvation because they're coming at you from every direction. And listen to this. That's protection for the head. And that's where doubt and discouragement start. Before you ever do it, you think it. Before you ever visualize it, you draw the picture in your mind. Before it becomes real, it's just in your imagination. Paul said, put on the helmet of salvation. Now, let me tell you what salvation is that he's referring to here. That is, the, that is the great hope of final salvation. And the great hope of final salvation is the Lord is coming. We're going to be with him, those who know him and love him. And we're going to be perfected in him. And we're going to be with him and saved from all of this, finally. So that gives us the helmet of salvation comfort and confidence and assurance that our, listen to this, some of you are going through it right now, our present struggle will not last forever. We know that we'll be victorious in the end. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the victory. Then Paul says, take on the sword of the Spirit. That's the word of God. And it's used both as a defense and a protection. But it must be used with precision. And I guess I didn't want to get to anything today in the message more than I wanted to get to this, the sword of the Spirit. It must be used with precision. Are you listening? Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness and used his defense for each temptation. What did he use? A passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 4. Just read it, please. Now, the sword of the Spirit can also be used to inflict blows 
Why? Because the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 4 said, it is alive, it's living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword dividing asunder soul and spirit. May you use this formidable weapon. Here's another repeatable. The believer, and this is part of the reason that I'm in this series. I've got to be honest with you. I explained it way back when, but this is part of the reason I want to go through this series on apologetics. Because the believer who does not know God's word well cannot use it well. Hmm? The believer who does not know God's word well cannot use it well. So use it. It's a weapon with, and use it with great skill. But you use it for the glory of God and the glory of His eternal kingdom. Now, one other note as a side note. You may notice this in your reading or writing. There's no armor for the back. Why? No turning back. There's no retreat. There's no running away. There's no surrender. There is no quit. Isn't that interesting? No back armor. Rather, keep on advancing. Keep on facing the enemies of doubt, discouragement, and self-pity. Stand up, go forward, claim victory for Jesus in His name and to His glory. Now, be great if everyone in the past and in the present lived up to these teachings of Jesus. It would be wonderful. Unfortunately, of course, that hasn't happened. But what we can say is look at the whole of what Christianity has meant in the world. Compare the relatively few instances of violence, historically speaking, there have been, which have been done by misguided Christians and often non-Christians in the name of Christ, they just joined in, to the overflowing contributions that Christianity has made in this world. Think about hospitals and think about homeless shelters and think about universities and think about orphanages and think about schools and think about rehab programs and think about relief organizations and on and on and on. Think about the Red Cross. Think about the YMCA. Think about Samaritan's Purse. By the way, all of these organizations were begun by Christian people who believed that they were called to serve people in the name of Jesus Christ. Think of mission organizations throughout the world who are responsible for saving millions of lives through their love for people. Dr. D. James Kennedy, who was the pastor of the great Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida for many years, he's since gone to be with the Lord, he wrote back in the 60s or early 70s, he wrote Evangelism Explosion, and many of us got involved in that program years ago. He's probably the nation's greatest right-to-life proponent and uh, promoter that, that this country has ever seen, D. James uh, Kennedy. Anyway, he said this. He wrote this. Christianity has been a boon to mankind and has had a beneficent effect upon the human race. Most people today who live in an ostensibly Christian environment with Christian ethics 
do not realize how much we owe Jesus of Nazareth. What goodness and mercy there is in the world has come in large measure from him. End of quote. If you want to put the violence in Christian history in perspective, you can do it. Simply compare it to what atheism has done in the world. In the Salem witch trials, a total of 20 people lost their lives. But it was a Christian leader, a Puritan minister <clears throat> by the name of Increase Mather, who became the seventh president of Harvard College, later university. He brought the madness to an end. Now, this I'm not diminishing the loss of 20 lives, but compare it <coughs> to the 100 million, only estimated, by the way, who have lost their lives, 100 million, who have lost their lives through the unspeakable cruelties of the promoters of atheism. Names like Lenin, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Slobodan Milosevic, Benito Mussolini, Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, Fidel Castro, Chiang Kai-shek, and many others. Remember the awful experiences and experiments and gruesome means of death that Adolf Hitler used to kill millions of people through prejudice and hate. They're still saying 6 million, which is probably 20 million. Misguided people who claim to be Christians may be capable of violence, but contrary to Ken Shi's opening statement that I read to you, it is people without God and without hope in this world and without a savior who have performed the most brutal and senseless atrocities known in human history for all time. The church has had its flaws. Anybody that denies that is denying reality. And for these things, we repent. But we also realize that what the world would be, what it would be like without the influence of the Christian faith. Look at Christian doctors who've given up and still doing it. Lucrative practices here in the United States in order to go serve in a third world country and just give their lives and their profession and their futures to, to the Lord that way. Missionaries who could have had successful careers at home have given that up, bring hope in areas of the world where there's very little hope, if any. It's Christians who are paving the way of peace. How many... Remember any stories in recent history that came out of the country of South Africa? How many are familiar at all with South Africa? How many ever heard of Nelson Mandela? Okay. After Nelson Mandela was released from prison and became a very popular hero to most people in South Africa, and he took power. He led a peaceful takeover of the government from those who had been their oppressors for years and years. And he set up what is now famous in history is called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Who, who knows who led that? The Archbishop of Cape Town, Bishop Desmond Tutu. How many ever heard that name? Well, let me just tell you a story here that's related to this. It grips me every time I hear it. I hope it'll have the same effect on you. After that commission was set up, 
the trial sought to reconcile the perpetrators of violent crimes and their victims. It was almost something akin to the Nuremberg trials, where all the Nazis were supposed to, and they're still trying them. But in the South African experience, the idea was to bring the perpetrators to trial and bring the victims as much as they could in there as well. Very tense situations. The Archbishop believes that, and he said, we can indeed transcend the conflicts of the past. We can hold hands as we realize our common humanity. And one historian relates one story that he told. Matter of fact, this came out in a, in a, a Canadian Mennonite magazine some time ago, several years ago, and I want to just read it to you. In an emotionally charged courtroom, an aging South African woman stood listening to white police officers acknowledge their atrocities. Officer Van de Broek acknowledged that along with others, he had shot her 18-year-old son at point-blank range. He and others partied while they burned the son's body, turning it over and over on the fire until it was reduced to ashes. Eight years later, Vandebroek and others returned to seize this woman's husband. She was forced to watch as her husband, bound on a woodpile, had gasoline poured all over his body, and then they ignited that body, the flames consumed his body. And the last words she heard her husband say were, just two words, forgive them. Now, Officer Van de Broek awaited judgment. South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission asked the woman what she wanted. That dear sweet lady said, I only want three things. I want Mr. Vandybroek to take me to the place where they burned my husband's body. I'd like to gather up the dust and give him a decent burial. Second, Mr. Vandybroek took all my family away from me. And I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. Third, I'd like Officer Vandebroek to know that he is forgiven by God. And I forgive him, too. I would like to embrace him so he can know my forgiveness is real. As the elderly woman was led across the courtroom, Vanderbroek fainted, overwhelmed. 
someone began singing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. Gradually, every single person in that courtroom joined in. If you never hear me say another word, if you never remember anything I've ever said to you, preached to you, tried to teach, that's all fine. If you'll hear what I'm going to say to close this message. That, my friends, is the spirit of Christ operating in the real world. That is how the war against evil is won. And someone in this room, this morning, right now, needs what I'm saying. They need this. You need this right now. So pay close attention like you never have before. These are your spiritual weapons. So let's take them up. What do you say? Let's strap them on. Let's move out. There is a broken world that needs the love and the grace and the forgiveness of our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's watch this together. <laughs>